All right, let's test. All right. I don't know where everybody went off to this Sunday morning. A little bit of rain and everybody's just hiding in their holes. That's right. That quarter inch of rain is just enough to stop everyone. Well, anybody who's, I've been, I'm I'm saying that joking, but I was amazed when I first got here. It rains and everybody stops. It's like, it just, it's crazy. So everybody will be here later, I suppose. But okay, let's get started with what we got. Let me uh, open us up with prayer and, uh, and we'll get going. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you've brought us to this day and to this moment in our lives. All sorts of different things going on, all sorts of different stages of life, all sorts of different activities, and yet one thing is absolutely clear, and that is that you are at work in this, your creation, in this, your universe, doing exactly what you have always deemed that you would do. Good news for us is that is always for our good and for the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, as we continue looking at the shorter catechism, may we do so so that we can better understand who this Jesus is and all that you have done for us in him. We pray that we would deepen our understanding, but even more importantly, that that would then issue forth in greater love and greater obedience. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're back to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and what we're doing is we're working our way through the catechism, just trying to get a a brief overview. Uh, Let's see, I don't have my podium here, so I may have to just do a little balancing act. I hope that's okay with you guys. Uh, As I do this. But uh, let's go ahead and look up the questions. Again, you're going to find those in your Trinity hymnal, the hymnal that's right in front of you, uh, on page 870-ish, I think we've said. If you don't already have it on your phone or on your um, any other kind of your devices. Yes, there you go. That's one of the old ones. Yeah. And that's what the scripture proofs. Yeah. He gets a gold star. All right, we're going to do two questions today. Last week we looked at what is God, right? Today we're going to look at um, the next two questions, five and six. Let's remind ourselves. Let's go just back briefly. Will somebody read question and answer number four? All right, God is a spirit, right? There we go. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable, and is being with some power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. All right, that was what we looked at last week. Now, today we said we're going to look at the Trinity. Can we do the Trinity in 45 minutes or less? Yes, yes, we can. Will somebody read question number five with its answer? And the answer, please, if you would. That's it. There is but one only, the living and true God. And question number six, somebody read that along with its answer.
All right. Now, very important. These three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. So here we have the two questions that come together to summarize what it is that God reveals about himself in Scripture, what we call the doctrine of the Trinity. And there are three, when we talk about the Trinity, there are three very important statements that the Catechism is essentially making that we want to safeguard. Okay? The very first one, there is one God, right? So this is a statement that's being made in Scripture. Our Catechism is summarizing it. There's another statement. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. That's a third statement that we see in Scripture and summarize here. And the last one, I can sit there and put it as... I'm sorry, Brandy, can I ask you to get that podium? If it's, not, it's just too much leaning down and trying to work off of this. No, no, that's quite all right. Thank you. And the language I want to use here. Thank you so much. So, a third statement is each of these persons is distinct, I should have said, one from another. So, there is one God, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, and each of these three persons is distinct one from another. So, that is what we see in our catechism question, also what we see in Scripture And what this does is it, it protects, if you want to call it that, it protects one of the key things that we have to always, or actually two key concepts that we have to be able to always have in regard to any discussion of the Trinity, and that is that it protects both the unity and the plurality of God. The unity of God and the plurality of God. Both of these things are presented in Scripture. They are not contradictory, but they are mysterious in how they work together. But we're going to look at that. So the first and second statement both defend the unity of God, and the second and third statement both defend the plurality of God. Let's talk about that first one, the unity of God. You see, the Trinity when we look at it biblically, presents both of these aspects of God. 
and they both have to be affirmed and they both have to be uh, believed. That's what we're being called to do. And throughout the history of the church, there have been groups that basically have found it too difficult, and so they take one of these to the exclusion of the other. So, for example, the unity of God. You've always had groups that affirm the unity of God, but don't affirm the plurality of God. So, for example, you think of Unitarians. I'm sure some of you have heard of those. If if you've lived in the Northeast, especially in New England, uh, you know that there's Unitarians everywhere. They're called Unitarian Universalists today. Now, those have become rather liberal, so any Unitarian Universalist today uh, is affirming all sorts of woke stuff and whatever. That's not necessarily a, a, a part of what their views entail, but a Unitarian believes that God is just one without any distinct persons. So when they look at the sun, they believe that the sun is maybe first in importance. Jesus is maybe uh, uh, higher ranked than any other part of creation, but he is only a created being, only a created being. So in their mind, that's how they see that. They don't uh, uh, see uh, the sun as being divine. Um, Jehovah Witnesses are Unitarians. Because Jehovah Witnesses believe that Jesus is Savior, but he saves as a human being who, who had the special favor of the Father, the special favor of God, but he himself is not God. So those are, those are the folks that affirm the unity of God, but do not affirm the plurality. And of course, then you have those who affirm only the plurality. The easy ones, of course, would be any kind of polytheists. A theist is somebody who believes in God, right? We get theology and that word theistic, all that comes from the word theos, which means God. So a polytheist is a person who believes in many gods. And so there you have this idea of, you know, the, the God of the skies, the God of the earth, the God of the trees, you know, the God of this and the God of that. And there's all sorts of animistic religions that hold to that. There's all sorts of um, uh, proto uh, uh, Western cultures, you think of Greek and Scandinavian, uh, pantheons of gods and so on and what have you. But again, today, those same things are held. Who's probably the biggest polytheistic group in the United States? Say again? Mormons, yeah. Uh, Mormons, some people say, well, no, don't Mormons believe that Jesus is just a regular human being? That would make him, that would make them Unitarians. Because No, they're actually polytheists because... God is God in this, in this universe, and Jesus was just a man, but because he did everything just right, he becomes God, and you too can become a God. And the God that we call God was also a man who at some point ascended and became God, and so on and so on. So they believe in multiple gods, but they don't believe in the unity that there is but one, there is but one only, the living and true God, right? So those are the problems that we're facing. But let's go ahead and take a look at how Scripture affirms each one of these and see how important they really are. So let's go ahead and jump in. Let's start with that first one. The very first thing is that we have to look at, and that's to see that God is just one. And as we saw that in the catechism question, there is but one only, the living and true God. So because of the the subject matter here, I'm going to, you know, I normally ask you guys to look up Scripture. I'm going to go ahead and just read some of these. Um, otherwise, we may not get through all this. And I think the Trinity is just important enough 
that we might want to uh, make sure that I cover all the material. By the way, it has been said, whether this is true or not, might be open to some debate, but I personally uh, do believe that it's true, that just about every theological error can be brought back to a misunderstanding of the Trinity. You might say, wait a minute, how about theological error regarding man and so on? It really can be brought back to the Trinity. We'll see why that is in just a moment. And it's interesting, um, around um, 2000, uh, when I had the privilege of uh, going through the process of uh, uh, doing Ph.D. work and that kind of thing, um, the guy that I was going to be working with, and of course you guys know the story, we ended up coming back to the States uh, once Greg was born, but... um, the guy that I was working with, who's now gone on to be with the Lord, Colin Gunton, was considered um, one of the leading scholars uh, in the reform world. He was a, a Britisher. And the thing that he was doing was restoring our looking at the Trinity, because the Trinity as a concept and as, a, as, a, as you say, as doctrine, has fallen away from evangelicalism probably since about the, uh, ever since the church growth movement started, because it all became clappy happy and all this other stuff. And the focus on the Trinity has really just fallen away. While the liberal churches uh, don't really care much about theology, they're building new theologies based on, uh, they literally are, they are new theologies based on their wokeness and all this other stuff. Evangelicalism has focused on entertainment and has forgotten the Trinity. I see that again and again when I go to worship services. Uh, People talk about God. They don't talk about Jesus. They talk about Jesus as the one who saves, and then after that, they park him on the shelf, and they forget that we have no fruition of God apart from Christ, right? John 1, 18. But anyway, we can go on about that. Let's go ahead and jump into this. There's these three essential doctrines, or three essential um, statements that we have to be able to defend. So the very first one, if we look at 1 Kings eight sixty, the Lord is God, and there is no one else. Very clear statement. Right? First Kings 860. Yep, thank you for asking me to slow down a bit because if I don't ask you to read them, then at least I should note them for you. First Kings 860. And then if we look at First Corinthians chapter 8, First Corinthians 8, 4 through 6, in verse 4, there is none other Uh, No other God, rather, but one. No other God but one, says verse 4. If we jump into the next following verses, for for though they be, um, I can't even read. For though there be those that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be uh, many gods and many lords, yet to us there is but one God. There is but one God. And then God himself speaks in Isaiah 44, 6. Isaiah 44, 6. I am the first and I am the last and beside me there is no other God. So we can go on. Um, usually, with the exception of that most polytheists today are outright pagans or Mormons are the only ones that claim to be within the Christian orbit. But usually Christians don't have a problem defending or affirming the unity of God. Oh, and I, of course, forgot to mention the great Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. one. Absolutely. 
So we want to essentially, we want to be able to, to defend this essential point. There is one God. But the next one is also that the scripture teaches that each of these three persons, and they are called persons. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But each of these three persons is God at the same time. Uh, we normally don't have to defend um, the fatherhood of God, so maybe let's just look at one passage that does that. Um, John 1.18, to which I just referred to, no man has ever seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him, and I use there the older translation. We talked a little bit about that last week. The only Son, the only begotten Son, and so on. Just wanted to make it clear, so I used that translation. But what it does is it refers to the Father and to God as the same. So usually when Paul talks about we praise the Father or he talks about God, he's talking about the Father and that kind of thing. Uh, This is one of those few passages where it specifically refers to God and then calls him Father so that you could see the Father is God. If there's uh, any doubt about that, John 1, 18. Right, but the Son is also God and this is where a lot of people sit there and say, well, the Bible never says that Jesus is divine. And then you just want to go, have you ever read it? Okay. So we can, uh, just again, very brief overview. We can take something like Psalm 45, verse 6. Psalm 45, verse 6, where it's talking about the Messiah who is to come. Now, I'm not going to defend here that Jesus is that Messiah. Catechism will deal with that later, and we'll deal with it later. But if Jesus is that Messiah, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And you might say, well, yes, God the Father, his throne is forever and ever, but Psalm 45, verse 6, is talking about the Messiah who will walk on this earth. Then you get that famous uh, section in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, 6 and 7, right? We sing it, Handel's Messiah, and he shall be called, what? Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, (laughs) Prince of Peace. What Everlasting Father? Hold on to that. I may not have time to deal with that today. That does not mean what you think it means. But let's focus on the almighty God part. Almighty God, right? And we take John 1.1. In the beginning, okay, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay, so very, very clear, right? Uh, We have uh, Thomas who sees Jesus resurrected in John chapter 20, verse 28. And when he sees him, he falls down on his knees and he cries out, my Lord and my God, right? We also see Jesus has the attributes of God. In John chapter one, verse four, it says he had life in himself. So he actually is life. The same thing is said again in John five twenty-six. We have the Great Commission in Matthew 28, verse 20. Lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. Even as he ascends, he says that he will be with them everywhere at all times and all places at the same time. So the attributes of God there. Uh, In John 1, 1, which we just looked like, in the beginning was the word. He was already pre-existent. He existed before creation. In fact, he did create all things. John 1 says, all things were made by him. John 1, 3, all things were made by him or through him, depending on your translation. Colossians 1, 17 and Hebrews 1, 3 says that he sustains all things. So very clearly, the Son 
is not only called God, but has all the attributes of God and does the works of God. So very clearly, the Son is God. Okay, let's move on. I'm going to, did I skip something? I did. That's going to take too long to explain. Well, we can look at uh, the beginning of Acts in uh, chapter 1 where it says that they worshipped him uh, as well. So uh, he's worshipped like God. I'll just leave it at that. Uh, now, the Holy Spirit is another one that sometimes is denied his personhood, denied the fact that he's God. Sometimes he's just seen or said to be just God in the world, that kind of thing, or a, or a life force or something. But no, the Holy Spirit also is referred to as God. In, in Acts chapter 5, when uh, Ananias and Sapphira are lying to God, are lying uh, to the apostles about their money and so on, Peter says in verses 3 and 4 of Acts 5, uh, we read, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to men, but unto God. So lying to the Spirit and lying to the God are equated. They are the same thing. 1 Corinthians 2.10, 1 Corinthians 2.10. We're told that the Holy Spirit searches all things and knows all things, even the deep things of God. In other words, he has the very attributes of God. He does the work of God. We're told in John 6.3 that the Holy, I'm sorry, John 6.63, that the Holy Spirit quickens, enlivens the person. It is the Spirit that gives life, all right? Uh, and let's just finish with Matthew twelve thirty one, where Jesus says, All manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven unto men. So blasphemy is something you can do only against God. And so again, the Spirit being equated with God. So what we have here very, very clearly is that each of these three persons is also God. And we get then into this idea that... The, the catechism question says they are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. So it gets to this idea that these three persons are one being, same in substance. And the word there that we use substance, we think of the word substance today almost scientifically, right? We think of, well, what's that substance? You're watching a CSI and get little, the little Q-tips, get on that. We don't tend to use the word substance a whole lot in normal conversation. What is translated substance uh, in, in what is being, that word being used in the catechism is not the way we tend to think of it. It's actually a technical term that reaches all the way back to the early church fathers when they were trying to wrestle with this very question. Is Jesus divine or is he just merely human? And they used that word very, very particularly in Greek. And what they were getting at is what we would today maybe better translate as being your essence as a being. And that's what they mean by the word substance. So the catechism writers are just picking up on that. They weren't thinking of substance like, you know, there's these substances here and some substances there. and you know. But this idea of the essence, what makes us an essential, um, you know, what makes us one being. Now, where we wrestle with this concept, see, they're not contradictory. Just because we don't understand something does not mean that it's contradictory. If you look carefully, there is no contradiction in anything that's being said here. In our experience, every being is one person. 
right? I am a being, you are a being, my dog is a being, right? But let's just kind of keep it in the realm of, of what is, uh, what we think of personhood. And each being that you know and are aware of is one person. What's, what we are affirming in the Trinity is that God is one being, one essence, but three persons. We don't understand it. It's not within the realm of our everyday experience, but you can see that there are no contradictions there. See that? Does that make sense? So again, we're just overviewing. There's so much more we'd want to say here. And in a moment, I do want to come back to how that works in terms of the fact that they are equal in power and glory and some of the mistakes that have come, come up on that, but just want to be careful with our time. Uh, the, uh, the very last of these is that they are distinct one from the other. They don't, um, they don't overlap and so on. And what we mean by that, and that, again, the fact that they are distinct means that they are equal in their power, equal in their glory. So each one of them is fully God. There isn't one that is lesser God. There isn't one that's mostly God or junior God or anything of that nature. They are the same. But there are some errors that you see people falling into. What I have just said, these are the three things that you have to affirm for the Trinity to have a biblical view. If you can hold these three uh, uh, points, these three major tenets, you've got the Trinity. And as I said, there's no contradiction in saying that there is three in one and one that is three. Uh, It's just, again, outside of our experience, how you have one person I'm sorry, one being the three persons is outside of our normal day-to-day experience, but there's nothing contradictory in it. And yet you find Christians then attempting to explain it. And when they do, they mess up this last one. This is one of the things that's most commonly messed up. So one of the views that I hear all the time in evangelical pulpits, and I keep saying evangelical because, look, I already know the liberal pulpits are going to say whatever, and they're going to do whatever. And, you know, whatever's on the news is going to drive them and so on and what have you. So I'm talking about here within our family, the areas that we need to address. And um, uh, one of the big explanations that I see all the time for the Trinity goes something like this. Well, it's like water. And so water can be ice, and water can be liquid water, and water can be steam. You've heard this, right? But that is an unbiblical, in fact, it's a heretical view. What? because it removes the distinction that exists between them. That's, by the way, called modalism, the idea that God assumes different modes. One moment, he's the father. He puts on his father cap, and he acts like the father. Oh, the next moment, he has to act like the son, so he takes off his father cap, he puts on his son cap, and he acts like the son, right? The living word who has to do his things. Oh, now he takes off his son cap, and now he's the spirit, and he puts on his spirit cap. And the idea is that God assumes different modes, different roles based on whatever the need is at the moment. Because water, right, when it's steam, it's not ice. When it's liquid water, it's not steam, and so on. And yet God is all three persons at the very same time. Where do we see that, by the way? Where do we see all three persons? There's at least two places in Scripture. Baptism, his Christ baptism. baptism. How so? Christ being in the water, God speaking, God the Father speaking from heaven, and the Holy Spirit taking the form of a dove. That's why you sit in the front row. There you go. 
That's exactly right. The Son is being baptized, the Spirit descending upon him while the Father speaks. You have all three persons there at one time. So absolutely. Uh, he wasn't going really fast. Take off from the hat. You know, just so fast we couldn't see him do it. Okay, all three there. Where else do we see it? Also having to do with baptism, but it's more of a declarative sentence. Yep, Matthew twenty twenty eight. when he ascends into heaven, he says, go therefore, right? And what does he say, tell us to do? Right? Make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, one of the things that's going to drive me crazy is when I watch pastors baptize uh, um, people and children and so on, and then they carelessly use that formula. That formula, which Jesus said, is meant to safeguard the Trinity. This is why when we open our service, what do we say? Our worship is, guys, come look at your bulletins. But how do we start? We start by affirming the Trinity. Why? Because it distinguishes us from every other form of worship. Our neighbors in the mosque next door cannot affirm the Trinity. Our friends in, uh, on Morris at the synagogue, the only synagogue in Denham County, cannot affirm the Trinity. Christian wor- worship is uniquely Trinitarian. When you hear a pastor get up there and say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, he's just collapsed all three of them into one. Oh, it's not that bad. Yes, it is. Everything in Scripture matters. And everything that our Lord says matters. When I say our Lord says, I don't mean the words in red, which if you have a Bible, it's word in red. Donate it, give it away, and get a real Bible. That's all in you know, letters in black, because Jesus has said it all. He is the living word. And so he speaks, and he is the old, our, high, our high priest, but also our prophet. Everything in Scripture is him speaking in that regard. But when he says, you baptize them in the name of the Father, does he say the names? If they were three distinct but, but apart, you'd have the names of the Father and, and the Son, and, and those would be three different names because they're three different gods. Nope, that's not right. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is to say that the name is Father, Son, and Spirit. That's not what it says. It says, baptize him in the name of the Father. There's a name that belongs to the Father. And the name of the Son, there's a name that belongs to the Son. And the name that belongs to the Spirit. And it's one name. What name is that? Uh, well, it belongs to the Father, Son, and Spirit, so not quite the Holy Spirit. What, how does God reveal himself? Did I just hear it? Yahweh, Yahweh right? It's the divine name. And so we're to be, to be baptized in that one name, the name that is the name of the Father, Yahweh, the name that is the name of the Son, Yahweh, the name that is the name of the Spirit, Yahweh. Do you see how that statement guards the unity and the plurality of who God is. Oh, absolutely. You say the name of the Father, the name of the Son, the name of the Spirit. But what is that name? That name is the name Yahweh. Yeah, yeah. So it is this one name of God who has revealed himself as I am. I am that I am. And that name applies to these three. It's not the names 
where the name, the name of one is the Father, the name of one is Son. Father, Son, and Spirit is not the name. That's what we're trying to get at. Nor is the name Father, Son, Spirit. So we've got to defend that. Name of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit. And you'll see when I do uh, a baptism, I will be very careful to highlight that of. I think it's an important thing because it highlights that this person is being baptized into the Trinitarian name. So very, very important. So anyway, that's the mistake, the error of modalism that tries to say that God assumes different modes. It's wrong. The other one that um, the name is not as, as well known is called monarchianism from the word monarch. And it's the idea that, uh, that one of the persons is superior king, as it were, right? Monarch king. And it's usually the idea that the father is the, 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 the real God or the, the, the senior God and the rest are junior God, God in a lesser sense and that kind of thing. And, and um, uh, that is uh, also a view that maybe not so as common, well, you know what, <laughs> like everything else, it's coming back. It's coming back. I'm hearing it all the time. Um, yeah, I'm just going to try to see if I can explain it without using the term subordinationism is uh, been making a comeback probably since the turn of the century. Have you, are you guys running into that in seminary? So I'm beginning to see a lot of folks who are well-meaning and using subordinationism, and I'll tell you why they're doing it. And this is why I'm saying every error comes back to the Trinity, including even errors about human beings. Oh, I need two dry erase boards. Um, I'm going to get rid of unity and plurality, but you guys can see it. First two are unity, second two are plurality. So, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, equal in power and glory. They're equally God. That's, that is, uh, we call that, for those who like theolo- theological terms, the ontological nature of the Trinity. Ontological just means in their essence. It has to do with your essence. If you ever study the ontology of something, you're just studying what is its essence, what is its being, what makes it up. So ontologically, in their essence, in their being, all three persons are equal in power and glory. Same in substance, equal in power and glory. However, each one of those distinct persons has a separate role they play in terms of our salvation. Now, they all three create, by the way. Let me just say, when we talk about this idea of roles and where subordination comes from and all this other stuff, it has to do with our role in salvation. Um, uh, Genesis 1.1, not Genesis 1.1, but uh, Genesis um, 1.26, let me make man, let us make man. So very, very, it's what we call an adumbration, which is just a technical term for a hint. You're beginning to hint at what it is that you're going to be, make more explicit later. Uh, and then we're told things like, uh, as we already said in John 1, 3, that Jesus is the one, nothing was made that was not made by him. And we see that affirmed again in Hebrews 1, 3, to even the point that not only does he, has he created the world, but he sustains the world. And the same thing said with the Spirit. So all three persons create. Uh, and they, um, so when we talk about different roles, we're really talking about in terms of our salvation, in terms of our redemption, because that's primarily what God is revealing to us in terms of his works apart from creation. So 
when we look at it that way, then there is this ordering out of roles that goes this way. Does that make sense? Father, Son, and Spirit. We call that the economic trinity. Economic? Where's the money? Okay. Uh, The word economy, as you know, just simply means the ordering out, the sorting out. When When we talk about the economy financially, we're talking about how our financial markets order themselves out, how all of that falls out. But the term economy just simply means the ordering out of things. So when we talk about the economic trinity, we're simply talking about how do they order out in terms of roles. So really, it's just here they are, equal in power and glory in terms of their substance, in terms of their being. But in terms of their roles, yes, the Son submits to the Father. The Spirit submits to both the Father and the Son. Um, there's something that I think I forgot to say when I was saying that, uh, oh, yeah, no, we're going, we're going there. Uh, with monarchianism, sorry, I forgot what it was I was talking about, the, the heresy. So in monarchianism claims that this subordination of the son is not just simply in terms of his role, but in terms of his substance. Do you see the difference? And that's a problem because, again, it makes him lesser God than the father. Now, you know, Jesus makes all sorts of statements that he's there, that, that his food is to do the will of the father, right? So we've got statements like that. So it's very clear he longs to do the will of the father. What do we make of statements? Let's see, did I write it down here? Okay, John fourteen twenty eight. My father is greater than I am. Oh, there, you see? You see? So he's less God. What makes Jesus unique is that he is both fully man and fully God. We'll treat that later in the catechism. But Jesus has a human nature that is fully human, is as human as my humanity and your humanity. But he's also at the same time fully God. We'll talk about that. I said we'll expand that. We won't touch upon it here. When he says statements like that, then it's very clear, if you just leave it at that and don't touch anything else, then you can arrive at the uh, conclusion that he's not just submitting to the will of the Father, but he himself is inferior to the Father. But that's not the case at all. You have uh, uh, passages like Philippians 2.6, where it says that Jesus being in the form of God, right, form of God. Oh, form, that just, again, very specific word being translated it comes from the word from which we come up with morph, to, to morph into something, uh, and it has to do with the imprint. It is, uh, uh, in Hebrews 1.3, it's called the image of God, or the, and so the exact imprint. And it doesn't mean copy as in a reflection, as in let's make man in our own image. It literally means the same thing in, in the Greek language. It doesn't come across as well when we're using it here. But it's actually saying that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Equality with God. So he is equal with God. You get that, pass, you get that in Philippians 2.6. So clearly when you go back to John 14.28 and the Father is greater than I, he's speaking about his human nature. Okay, that's how you look at that. Anne, question? Yeah, it's a precisely... And he says, I don't know that my father cares. So 
Yes, exactly, yes. So when you have those kind of statements, you have Jesus and his humanity. Right. That's a good question. Yeah, uh, my my guess is it's being it's Jesus the man does not know. That's the that's the impression you get. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to ask you to hold on to that. We're going to talk about when we come to Jesus and we talk about his how he can be both fully human and fully divine, and what does that mean in terms of what he knows and so on. We'll deal with those things. Let me just here simply affirm that Scripture makes clear that he is fully God, and so he is he's not inferior. And that's where we get into this monarchianism that tries to uh, subordinate not just his role, the father elects, the son saves, the spirit applies that salvation, right? By the way, the spirit, John 14, 26, John 15, 26, both of those, easy to remember because they're both verse 26, uh, talk about the spirit proceeding from both the father and the son. So in terms of that subordinationism, it's only in regard to that role but not in terms of their essence. That's a very important thing for us to be able to to distinguish. Uh, Because our time is almost up, I'll simply say this. When we talk about how this affects everything, every relationship that exists is rooted in the Trinity, right? All our relationships are rooted in the Trinity. Let me just take marriage, a rather important one, right? What do we affirm? In Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our own image, male and female, right? So there's this idea that when I say man, don't get hung up on it and all that. We're talking about human beings. So human beings are going to be made in the image of God, but they're going to be made in two sexes. Please don't say gender, because if you say gender, not only is it an incorrect term, but you've bought into their, they're pulling you into a grammatical. Gender only applies to grammar, right? Nouns can be, or certain words can be masculine, feminine, and neuter. That's their gender creatures, uh, uh, living things, have sex. Two sexes, uh, not two genders. The reason they want to use, uh, get you using the term gender, and they've succeeded spectacularly, is because gender is assigned. Right? There's no word that actually is, by nature, male or female. We're just in our language, we've determined that that word is male. We've assigned a gender to it. Sex is not assigned. But if you can go around and say, I'm biologically male, my sex is male, but my gender is whatever, you know, one of 27 or whatever the list is, let's just make it simple, female, you can see how that works. So uh, God creates then man, one species, one human, but in two sexes. And what's interesting about that is in the marriage relationship, is the woman inferior to the man ontologically? In her essence, man and woman are just like this. They are the same ontologically. In terms of their roles of headship, the husband and wife are like that in terms of their, but in terms of their essence, women are not inferior. We must affirm full equality in that regard, men and women. And here I'm talking about the marriage relationship, but it can be taken other. But in terms of the marriage relationship and roles, the wife submits to the father in the same way that the son submits to the father there. I'm sorry, that wife submits to the husband in the same way that the son submits to the father. You see that? And if you don't get this 
Trinity right, you're not going to get this marriage relationship right. So you can see how every error, ultimately, if you track it far, far enough, will find itself in the Trinity. Okay, we are almost out of time. Uh, so monarchianism is also garbage, um, and it's being pushed, like I said, increasingly among some people. Uh, in evangelicalism, it's making its return uh, as Christian, or um, yeah, I think it's just called Christian subordinationism, that kind of thing. So what have we arrived at? We've arrived in this inescapable conclusion that the scripture affirms these three things. There's one God, the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. And each of these three persons is distinct one from the other. Uh, And if you can hold on to those three things, you have the full biblical view of the Trinity. It does not explain how one being can be three persons. But then again, can you explain how one being is just one person? You just affirm that because that's your everyday experience. But you can't explain it any more than anything else. It just simply is. And so the Trinity simply is. Phil. Yeah, that's a very good question. Is our Jehovah Witness friend or is our Mormon friend going to go to heaven because they believe that Jesus saves, but they don't believe that he is uh, God as he presents himself? See, I think it would be so easy to say, well, all you have to do is just believe that Jesus saves. That's all it takes. And I think that's a, shall we call it, a reductionist statement. In other words, it reduces the Christian faith to simply, my whole goal in the Christian faith is just to get out of hell. And so Jesus is my substitute. It doesn't matter what I believe about him. As long as I believe that he did this for me, that he died in my place, whether he was God doing it or so on, it doesn't matter. He's going to give me my get out of hell free card. And we've reduced the Christian life to that. Catechism is our friend. What's question number one say? What is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Can we glorify him if we don't understand him? John 1.18 tells us that no one has seen God, but only the Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, the one and only Son, the begotten Son, is the only one who reveals him. We cannot know God unless we understand everything through Jesus. In other words, Jesus is the revealer. And so he, you know, he tells Philip, you've seen me. And if you've seen me, why do you keep asking to see more? Why do you ask to see the Father? You have seen me. In other words, if we want to return to a radical Christocentricity, Christ-centered Christianity, one where I can go to an evangelical church, like one that I was at not too long ago and actually heard the whole service and only heard the name of Christ being used in the single one prayer in the whole worship service at the end of the sermon that ended with, in Christ's name we pray, Jesus was never mentioned in the sermon or in any of the songs or anything like that. It was all about God, generic. Our Muslim friends and our Jewish friends could have joined that worship easily, except they have more respect in their worship than they did in this church where everybody was just bouncing around and holding streamers. Okay, sorry. Um... So I I think the answer is no. And the reason is, who is this God that is saving us? We do not even conceive of him rightly unless we conceive of him as a a trinity. This is how he has revealed himself. And he calls us into a relationship with him, right? 
you remember the sermon uh, a few weeks ago that Dave Boxerman preached? And he talked about what is the cause of Christ's death, our sin. Uh, it was the character of a death, and it was atoning, and substitutionary, and propitiatory, and what was the fourth one I forget that he mentioned? Uh, uh, sufficient. Um, and then he said, um, and what is the consummation? What was the whole purpose? The whole purpose of Christ's death in that one passage is to bring us to God, is to have that relationship with God. You cannot have that relationship with a God that's not Trinitarian. So in the end, salvation is really a, a, a full Lord. It's not just simply a get-out-of-hell-free card. It's a restoration of us to a right relationship with God, with right thinking, orthodoxy, right practice, orthopraxy, right feeling, orthopathos. Those are the three things that God is restoring you to. And that means that included in that is a right understanding of who God is. So, no, I think the answer um, to our, our friends who claim that all you've got to do is just believe in Jesus, that's true on his face of it. But the scripture, when we look at it, is so much broader than that. And even what Jesus is calling us to is more than just simply believing that he's going to save us from our sins. It's why is he saving us from our sins? To restore us unto himself into a right relationship where we take on our role again as vice regents of this planet to once again live for God and through God. So all that means we've got to understand who he is. Does that help, Phil? Okay. Um, Jonathan? Well, that's a fully loaded question because you're asking, how do I relate to them, and then how do I help them encourage them to a better understanding? Well, t- tell them to come here. Um, <laughs> you know, when, when we're looking at a Mormon, when we're looking at a Jehovah's Witness, when we're looking at a Unitarian, when we're looking at a um, uh, Christian science and all these other clear cults, their very belief system is already flawed. When you come to Roman Catholicism... Can we say the belief system is flawed? Yeah, at some level, you, you have to be able to affirm that. Do I believe that there are some Roman Catholics who, in spite of their theology, are trusting in Christ? Yeah, because the kernel of what's true in Scripture is actually found in Roman Catholic doctrine. It's have the, it has these accretions that have weighed it down and ultimately lead us into resting on our own performance. Before we're too harsh on them, if I were to go around nine out of ten churches I would pop into if I were to interview people what I would hear from people evangelical churches baptistic bible churches methodist churches presbyterian churches just need to say that right if I were to ask people I would find a good chunk of people are sitting around and saying yeah I'm just going to try harder uh, they may not put it in those terms but they're they're basically right back to to a performance orientation uh, and I've often said that the evangelical church is today where the Roman Catholic Church was before the Reformation. 
exactly on all its points. It just has a different manifestation of those same errors. We may not have one pope, but we have other things and so on and so on. I can defend that statement. I can't do it now because it's ten, we're well, well past our time. So how do we relate to those persons? I think the way we do it is very simple. We understand, first of all, if we get anything, if we've understood anything biblically, and there's a reason for confessions and catechisms is that it, it bakes this stuff in. Oh, that's so rigid. Oh. You always want to be looking back at Scripture and affirming and testing and so on. But it keeps us from just every generation thinking in every church and every pastor thinking whatever he can think. When we have somebody who's got those different views, we understand that if we understood anything, it was only by grace. There is nothing in us. We're not far, faster, smarter, better, better, more handsome, anything. Well, some of us, maybe. Uh, <laughs> no, but you get the idea. There's nothing in us that makes us better. If we've understood anything, we have to be able to come with grace to those folks, bring them back to Scripture, and help them. You already know, because it's all been written out there, what are the general er areas of error in the Roman Catholic Church? What are the general areas of error in Pentecostalism and any one of those? So help them to come and see just by engaging them, loving them, being friends with them. I treat them as no different than any other unbeliever, but since we're not supposed to look down at unbelievers, we're supposed to treat them with gentleness uh, and be able to give a, you know, a hope for the reason within us and so on and it should be no different. That, I, I'm sorry, I'm not really answering that. There's just too much to go into that. We're going to finish here, and then we've got to stop. Now, you're hitting on something that uh, is, almost sounds trite when you say it, but it's that theology matters. And it's not because it's simply a head thing, but when it's properly taught and properly understood, it affects the way we live. Remember, you always act according to what you believe, and that's going to shape your view. Well, your view of God will shape how you respond to those situations and so on. So absolutely, a God who's not presented in his fullness, right, who is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable, and his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, when we lop off any one of those we're going to end up with a defective way. So if your orthodoxy is broken, your orthopraxis, your behavior is going to be broken, right? And that's how that works. Okay, let's go ahead and stop here. We're out of time. Uh, we'll continue next week on the next question. So let's pray. Father, it's an amazing doctrine, the doctrine of the Trinity. It's beyond our ability to fully grasp, but we can grasp what is here. Uh, Deuteronomy 28, 28 says that the secret things of God belong to God, but those things that are revealed are for man to understand. And so this has been given to us, these three statements. Help us, Father, to learn them, help us to uh, understand them, and help us, Father, to then be able to believe them wholeheartedly. We thank you, Father, for the mystery of the Trinity, and we pray, Lord, that we would be gracious as we um, engage our friends and our neighbors uh, with the full orbed gospel. Uh, that we would be able to bring them into uh, a right relationship through Jesus Christ to the triune God. And we pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.